You're listening to a message from Christ's Covenant Church, where we are growing together in Christ as a caring community of disciple-makers. Thank you for listening, and please feel free to share this with others who may find it helpful. John, John chapter 18. Uh, we're going to start reading here in just a moment. We'll start at verse 12. Um, but before we do, I wanted to, to share a phrase with you that I trust most all of us are familiar with. It's the simple statement we throw around in our culture. We say, the ends justify the means. Are you familiar with that phrase? I was trying to teach my kids this phrase, what that means, because it's a little tricky. But it's essentially this idea that uh, what we are seeking to accomplish or bring about, if it's, as long as we think it's a good thing, then some of the means or the methods to get there don't really matter as much. That, that we might be able to, to kind of be sketchy or a little dicey, a little uh, immoral at times in what we're seeking to do because we think we're trying to bring about a good. We think we're trying to, to do something good, whether it's for ourselves or for other people or for society. And so we tend to justify those things at times and, and make small compromises, make small, uh, sometimes we knowingly sinful actions. And we think that it's okay. And we're going to see in this text today, we're going to see a word that I'm going to use a lot, where this word expedient. Uh, that's going to be in this text because I, I think we're going to see it in a few different people in the story. And hopefully we're going to see it in ourselves. That there's this temptation in life to think about being expedient when it comes to a situation. That, that I, I want to, to be expedient means to do something that is convenient or practical even though it may be improper or immoral. We're, we're trying to do something quick, make a, a fast decision, just do something and not really worry about the rightness or the wrongness of it, but we want to bring out about an outcome that we think is good. And so we, we resort to just doing what's expedient, what's convenient, what's easy in this life. And we're going to see Peter do that. We're going to see the Jewish leaders do that. And I, I trust that the Lord is going to help us by the end to see how we even do this in our life. That we tend to sometimes make choices that are more expedient than godly. We make choices, we compromise on things, sometimes in small ways, uh, sometimes knowingly we compromise on things because we think it's going to alleviate a situation, it's going to bring about some good. And I trust that the Lord will show us this in the lives of these people, in the life of Jesus, how he resisted against that temptation, but ultimately how we deal with this ourselves. So we're going to read today John chapter 18. We're going to start in verse 12, and we're going to go all the way down to verse 27. So we're going to cover a decent bit of territory today. But if you haven't been with us, we've been going through now for months the story that we call John. John was one of the disciples of Jesus. He was one of the people who was with him for at least three years at the end of Jesus' life, learning from him, watching him perform miracles, listening to him teach crowds, having private conversations with him uh, where he would instruct them and, and call them to certain actions and responses. And John recorded the life of Jesus for us focusing mainly on the last couple years and even on the last few days, especially, of his life before he was crucified and raised from the dead. And we're in that section now. We've been for a few weeks looking at uh, the last couple hours even of Jesus' life, that Thursday night before he would be arrested and crucified on Friday morning. We're right in the middle of that now. Where Last week, if you were able to be with us, we saw when Jesus finally was arrested. His friend Judas had betrayed him. Judas had brought a band of soldiers to this garden where he knew Jesus would be. And Jesus didn't want to hide. He was there to be found. And he was found by these soldiers, hundreds of men probably. They arrested him. And now we're going to see what unfolds 
as, as we continue in John's record of what took place, as, as one who is an eyewitness of these things. So follow along with me. I'm going to read the whole text, 12 to 27, then we'll walk back through it and see what the Lord may have to say to us today. So follow along with me, start in verse 12. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews, and here's going to be that word, that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. And Jesus answered him, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who've heard me what I, sa- or heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it and said, I'm not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, that's what had happened the night before, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? And Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. There's much that that takes place here, and I want to walk back through this more slowly, but I wanted to share first what I I want to to share with us as a church family this morning from this text, kind of the summary of what I think the Lord may have us to learn from this. And I would say it this way, that we must resist the lure of expediency. We must resist the lure of expediency and stand for Christ even when it costs us must resist the lure of expediency and stand for Christ even when it costs us. And I want to walk back through this text and I want to show first how expediency led to Christ's death. But then I want to show how expediency led to Peter's denial of Jesus as well. And then we're going to see ultimately how to resist that temptation to expediency. We're going to see Jesus doing that in this text. How he resisted that lure of, of just doing what would have been expedient and easy And then ultimately we're going to see how we can resist that that lure of expediency. How the Lord might press us to to resist that temptation. To just do what comes easy and convenient even when we know that it's wrong. 
So first, like I said, I want to talk about how expediency led to Christ's death. That's where this text starts. Uh, that's where we see this, that actual word, expediency, is where we see that expediency is what led to Christ's death. I would note here, uh, following with what we talked about last week, if you look back at verse 12, when Jesus is arrested, we should not read that at all as him being uh, passive him being just one who is a victim of circumstances if you were here with us last week we saw when jesus spoke the men who came to arrest him fell back and jesus still willingly allowed himself to be bound and so though john records that the officers of the jews the soldiers their captain they arrest jesus and bound him it's because jesus wanted it to happen Jesus was willing for it to happen. He wasn't just some passive victim of what, what they were doing to him. But nonetheless, he is bound. He's arrested. We don't know what, what exactly that looked like physically. But they lead him back into Jerusalem to this man named Annas. I want to uh, share just real briefly, because I was a little confused when I first read this, about who these men are when they talk about the high priest. Because we're going to see a man named Annas, and we're going to see a man named Caiaphas. And one of, they, they both are kind of talked about as being the high priest. And I was very confused when I read this at first, because it talks about how they take him to Annas, who's the father-in-law of Caiaphas, and they mentioned that Caiaphas, John mentions that Caiaphas was the one who was actually high priest that year. And then there's this conversation that happens between the high priest and Jesus. But then later John says that they took Jesus to Caiaphas. And it's like, who is he ta who's talking to who and what's going on here? What is going on here? It makes a lot of sense when you know some of the background of what took place. And you even get hints of this throughout the Bible. Annas was an older man at this time. He would have been an older man in there in Jerusalem. He had been the high priest up until a couple of decades before this happened, probably when Jesus was about a teenager. Something happened where Annas, the, the Roman government, the people who were ruling over Jerusalem, made him, they deposed him. They made, they made Annas no longer be the official high priest there in Jerusalem. But what happened was that the Jews loved him. They revered him. They respected him. And so they still treated him as if he was the high priest. Uh, that they had this respect for him. Some people call him like that. We have like emeritus professors at schools, things like that, who kind of are professors, but they're just older, more seasoned people who, who teach at kind of as needed. That's kind of what Annas was. He was the high priest emeritus of sorts. He was uh, like a figurehead, but would sometimes be consulted for questions and activities that would need to be done. So they talk about him in some ways as the high priest. But Caiaphas was the one that got installed formally as the high priest. He was the one who officially, as far as the Romans were concerned, was the high priest. And so the, what happens here is that they lead Jesus first to that older man, Annas, uh, to be questioned by him, to be talked to by him. And then later he is taken to Caiaphas, we see down in verse 24. And so if, if that was confusing to anybody, I just wanted to clarify that because it had originally been confusing to me. But they, nonetheless, they bring him to that older man, that high priest, uh, emeritus, Annas. And Jesus is going to be talked to by him. He's going to be questioned by him. But what I want to point out is there in verse 14, they mention that, that formal high priest, Caiaphas. John mentioned something he had talked about way earlier, seven chapters earlier, back in John chapter 11. There had been this conversation where Caiaphas, that acting high priest, 
of the day had told the Jewish leaders as, as people started following Jesus and being more intrigued by him and wanting to go after him, Caiaphas came up with this idea saying that it would be expedient. It would be better for us as Jews here in Jerusalem and maybe even around the world if we just put Jesus to death. Like, if we just deal with this problem, I know it's going to be ugly. I know it's going to be hard. I know maybe we don't have a lot of good charges to bring against him, but it is going to be expedient for us to put him to death. Because he's starting to have people, uh, there's starting to be some uproar and stir and people wanting to follow after him. The easiest thing for us, even though I know it's kind of questionable, would be for us to put him to death. For us to once and for all deal with this man named Jesus. He said that it would be expedient for them that one man should die instead of the whole people getting an uproar and having unrest and, and a lack of rule. And so Caiaphas had said that. That's what he wanted to happen. That's ultimately what did happen. Caiaphas starts stirring up the Jewish leaders to be against Jesus. He starts plotting to have Jesus be arrested, plotting to have Jesus be killed. But Caiaphas said something that was more profound than what he realized. John often does this. Caiaphas said that it would be good for one man to die in place of the people and and to keep safety and security and stability there for the Jews. But Caiaphas was saying things truer than what he realized. Uh, Because in God's story and what God wanted to have happen, he was going to have one man die for the people. But it wasn't going to be, it was not going to be dying to bring about some peace and stability in society and in Jerusalem and to, to squash unrest. That's what Caiaphas's aim was, was to die for that aim, to, to help the people in that way. What God wanted to have happen was to have one man die and be put to death, but it was going to be to establish peace where it did not exist. Not to just keep it there in society, but to establish peace between sinful people and God. And it wasn't just going to be for Jewish men and women and children and boys and girls. It was going to be for people all over the world and all throughout time who would put their trust in him. He wanted to establish peace. So God did want one man to die for the people. But the Jewish leaders, what they were doing was they were trying to just do what was expedient politically for them. They wanted to do something that was controversial, that they knew was probably wrong in many ways to put Jesus to death. But they thought that there was this end in mind, this peace and stability in Jerusalem that they were willing to compromise on. They were willing to fudge a little bit on their rules and on their processes, even legally, to get this man off of the radar screen, to get him out of that city, out of the world, and so they could get back to having peace there in Jerusalem. And so it was expediency on the part of the Jewish leaders that led to Jesus being arrested, that led to him being crucified. They were willing to compromise for the sake of trying to establish peace. And so that expediency was what led to Christ's death. But what you see mostly in this text, and what I want to spend the most time on here, is how expediency led to Peter's denial of Jesus. Every single gospel writer, all four of them, talk about this very situation. And how Peter, that night, that Thursday night going into Friday morning, he denied his friend Jesus. He denied his Savior Jesus when he was challenged and questioned. And I think what we see in this is that expediency's pull, like that temptation to compromise, to do something in the moment that we know is wrong for the sake of something that we think is good, for the sake of of peace and ease. It wasn't just something that was experienced by Jesus' enemies. It was experienced by his friends as well. 
to just treat him in a way that was easy for them, to, to do what was expedient and easy for them, and even to distance themselves from him when it became convenient for them, to start to make choices that they knew were wrong when, it was, when things became difficult for them. So I want to walk through, we'll look at verses 15 to 18 first, like how Peter denies uh, Jesus the first time, and then we'll jump down to verse 25 to 27 and see how he denies him the second and the third time. I'll say this, I was convicted of this this week, that sometimes I think we are too critical of Peter here, where, where we look at him and think, I would have never done that. Like, how could he do that? Like, how could he sell out? How could he deny Jesus? How could he just, matter of fact, say, I am, I am not one of his followers. I do not follow him. I don't even know him, some of the gospel uh, authors record for us. Sometimes I think we are too critical here, and we don't fully appreciate all that is going on. Uh, the fact that Peter actually went there, for example, like when so many of the other disciples just scrambled and left and went to their homes, Peter actually followed. And so I, I want us to have some sympathy with Peter here, but I also want us to see ultimately that he does a grievous thing here in selling out Jesus and that we do the same. But follow along with me and we'll, we'll see what took place. It says that Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did another disciple. As best as I can tell, and I won't explain all of the reasoning why, but I think when, when John is talking about that other disciple, I think he's actually talking about himself. It was this unusual thing that John did a few times throughout this record of his gospel where he doesn't actually name John. He calls him the beloved disciple, the disciple Jesus loved. I think here he's talking about himself. I don't know that absolutely, but I think he's talking about himself. And so if he is... Uh, that, it, that means that Peter and John both together followed behind Jesus or behind that crowd of men. Uh, they were doing so at a distance, we see from the other gospel writers, but they followed them into town to see what was going to happen, to watch. And presumably the other, it would have been nine that were left. Uh, they did not. They, they scrambled. They went home. But Peter and maybe John, uh, this other disciple, they follow behind him. Maybe they got there separately. We don't know if they went together, if they went different routes to get there into Jerusalem to the house of the high priest. But they both go. And I want you to think about this. This would have taken immense courage by Peter, wouldn't it? We're going to see this, this courage for him uh, turn quickly into disowning Jesus. But think about the courage of this. If you were here last week, do you remember what Peter just did? When these hundreds of men had come to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter, a fisherman, had taken a sword and tried to cut one of their heads off. Like, and he had missed, I think. He had cut off his ear. But he had just done something immensely aggressive towards these people who are arresting his friend and saying he knows they're going to put him to death. He knows they're going to kill Jesus. He knows what's happening. And Peter had been put in his place by Jesus, and Jesus said, put that sword away. But think of the courage it would have taken for Peter to even have any thought of going behind that crowd, of following them even at a distance, and then to even go into the courtyard and to be by a fire where these people who had just arrested his friend and he had just tried to hurt are standing there. 
these people have all the power, who have all the authority in this circumstance, and he is following behind them. This would have taken immense courage. But what we see take place as, as Peter and maybe John, this other disciple, arrive there, is that that other disciple was allowed to go in closer and to see what was happening. He was allowed initially to go into the courtyard of this household where the high priest would have been questioning Jesus and to get closer to the action. We see that uh, in verse 15, it, John records that that disciple, maybe himself, had been known to the high priest and he entered in. He, he was allowed entrance to see what was taking place. But Peter, verse 16, has to stay outside. Like he's not allowed initially there into the courtyard to be closer to hear what's going on. But he stays there and he waits. And then what happens is that John, who has that, that he kind of has that relational closeness for some reason with the high priest. He's allowed to just come and go. We don't know why that is. We don't have all the backstory. He goes out to vouch for Peter, in a sense, to say, hey, like, let him in. Like, let him come in here. Uh, let him in. He, he should be allowed to come in here. And there's this servant girl that John records for us uh, in verse 16 who keeps watch at the door of the courtyard to kind of be a, a gatekeeper of who can come in and come out. And John tells her to let Peter in, and she does. But as she does, note in verse 17, the servant girl says to Peter, you're also not one of this man's disciples, are you? She's very clearly talking about Jesus, saying you're not one of his disciples also, are you? A couple of things that points out to us. One is that she knew that that other disciple was a follower of Jesus, because she says also. So he was allowed to come in, but when she questions Peter, the answer she's expecting is no. Like in the, the language, that when she's asking him that, it's rhetorical. She's expecting him to say, no, I'm not. Like, I, I'm not one of his disciples. And in order to get, how John records it, it seems, in order to get closer to the action, which Peter might have thought was a good thing, he denies Christ. He says, no, I'm not. And it, it may have felt very innocent to him. It may have, I don't know, we don't know all his motives, but it may have felt like a simple transactional, I just say a couple words, say what I need to say, and then I can get a little bit closer to Jesus to see what happens and maybe had aims of doing something else to try to break Jesus free. I have no idea. But I do know that he compromised, that he was willing to say, no, I don't know Jesus for the sake of expediency. To say, if me saying no means I can get this, then I'm willing to say I don't know. I'm willing to, to disown him. I'm willing to deny him. And that's what takes place. She hears that. Uh, she lets him in. And he goes and he stands around this charcoal fire uh, that many of those people who had just probably been in the garden are there warming themselves around. We'll come back to the, the middle section here, verses 19 to 24 in a minute. But I want to jump down and would have you jump down as well to verse 25 because we're going to see Peter deny Jesus again and again. Peter's been allowed to enter that courtyard now because he denied Jesus the first time. But we're going to see, it seems that denying Jesus becomes easier and easier for him. The first time, it, it, it may have, he may have felt conflicted, we don't know, but he becomes quicker and quicker with these denials as the questions come to him. Something I think he never would have thought he did. And we know he didn't think he would deny Jesus because back in John chapter 13, Jesus had told him, Tonight, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times, Peter. 
And Peter had said, no, I won't. I will die for you. Like Peter never expected that this would happen to him, that he would actually deny Jesus, let alone do it three times. But that's what John saw happen. That's what John records for us. So he records verse 25 that Simon Peter was standing and warming himself there by that fire. And some there around the fire, we don't know who, but they say to him, you're also, very similar question, you're also are not one of his disciples, are you? And it feels a little bit easier for Peter to answer this time again. He says, I'm not. And then we see in verse 26 that one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off. And so pressure is going to be increasing. Like this was somebody who was probably there, based on his questions about us, was there in the garden, saw him cut off the ear of his relative. He asked him now, he says, didn't I see you there in the garden with him? It feels a little bit easier again for Peter that Peter again denies it and at once a rooster crows. What is happening here, Peter is around this fire. It would have been dark probably still at this time. Maybe he had a hood up, I don't know. But there's this fire that's giving some light for people to see. And these people who are there around the fire, they maybe start to see some of the shape of his face. And they remember this I just saw you, didn't I? Jesus would have been very well known to people around Jerusalem. He was the face of all these things. Peter may not have been as well known, but they knew they recognized him from what they had just seen there at the Garden of Gethsemane. And they start to press him on it and say, weren't you there? Like, aren't you one of his disciples? Like, aren't you one of his people? And for expediency's sake, for convenience sake, because it was saving him, because it made things easier for him, Peter becomes quicker and quicker to say, no, I don't. I don't know him. I am not one of his disciples. And Jesus had known it. Jesus had predicted it back in John 13. And as a reminder that a rooster crows, verse 27, Jesus had said that would happen, that that a rooster would crow after he denied him the third time, and he does. And we don't know exactly what's going on in Peter's heart and mind here. Some of the other gospel writers, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, record that Peter, there's something going on in his psyche here where he even starts to kind of devolve into cursing. We see him weeping. Like John records it just very simply here. They just denied him, denied him, denied him. But we start to see, based on some of the other gospel writers, that this is agonizing Peter, but he keeps doing it. Like he, he, it doesn't stop him from denying Jesus. He keeps denying him over and over and over. And so it's expediency that leads to Peter's denial. But I skipped over a middle section, didn't I? And I, I want to return to this because this is the most important part of this text. Is because I want us to see how John on purpose... In between Peter's denials, in between his first denial and then that second and third one, he interjects the story of Jesus resisting that very same temptation. The temptation to just do what was expedient, to do what was easy, to do what could have got him off the hook, to to get, uh, get a situation to improve for him. Jesus, we see, resisting that temptation to do what was expedient. Him resisting the temptation to do what was convenient for him. So we see back in verse 19 that Annas, that high priest emeritus, so to speak, he starts questioning Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. 
how Jesus answers him, it, it, it's very uh, matter-of-factly. He says, things, like, I've, I've not been secretive about what I've taught. Like, I, I've taught in synagogues. I've taught here outside the temple. I've taught publicly. I, I've done things for everybody to see, essentially saying, you know what I've said. Like, you know what I've taught. You know who my disciples are. And he's telling him, he says, uh, verse 21, he's, he says that this high priest should bring in witnesses. He says, why don't you bring in witnesses? They'll tell you what I said. That would have been the normal way court proceedings would have happened in their day, that they should have happened, is that they would bring in, instead of the defendant, so to speak, standing up for themselves and offering a defense, is that they would bring in third parties to bear witness, to say what this person had or hadn't done. And Jesus is just appealing to that, say, do that. That's what you're supposed to do as the high priest, is to have people come and bear witness, and, and they'll tell you what I've said and what I have haven't said and then verse 22 i cried on multiple occasions when i read this that it says that when he said these things one of the officers standing by struck jesus with his hand saying is that how you answer the high priest like to this point jesus has has been verbally mistreated. I know he has been uh, relationally abandoned by people. He has been bound. But this is where we start to see people strike against him, like to go on the offensive against him. This is a human being, someone that, that he helped create, whose life he helped plan, who has the audacity to take his hand and smack him across the face and says, will you talk to the high priest like that? Think about who he's speaking to. This is the spiritual, the heavenly high priest. The, the fact that the high priest's office even exists is to point to Jesus. To point to the fact that someday he was going to intercede for us. Someday he was going to offer a sacrifice for us. So he, someday he was going to teach us and mediate between us and God. That's why these high priests exist. is because of Jesus. Is to point to him. And Jesus knows this, but he has this high priest, and even not the high priest himself, but just some officer of the high priest, smack him across the face. Say, well, you talk to him like that. If anything, the tables should have been turned, and Jesus just said, well, you talk to me like that. And he could have just stopped this. We're going to see this over and over again in weeks ahead. He could have just stopped this. He could have put an end to it. He could have done what was expedient and easy and would have been righteous of him, not wrong of him, but righteous of him to put an end to this and say, you will not treat me like this. Like, I will not tolerate this. And he could have just squashed these people. But he doesn't. Like we see Jesus over and over and over keep walking closer and closer and closer to the cross use what we talked about last week as he was called to drink the cup of God's wrath. We see Jesus grab it and hold on to it and start lifting it up to his mouth to drink it. An intensity of opposition is going to ramp up against him. But we see Jesus resist that temptation to do what was expedient, to do what was would have been easier for him, what would have been most convenient for him. We see him resisting over and over and over. Sometimes we, we think that this, uh, it must have been simple for Jesus to resist temptation because he was God. 
I want to share a quote with you. This is from C.S. Lewis. I, I ran across this years ago. It's from the book called The Way of Glory. Could we put that up on the screen, that quote? Um, because this was something that was, was thought-provoking to me because we see, even in this story and even in our own lives, we cave so easy to temptation. But Jesus didn't. And I, I want to read this to you. This is wonderfully said. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. Then he continues and says, A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply doesn't know what it would have been like an hour later. Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the man who knows to the full what temptation means. I thought that was so well said because we see in the life of Peter when the temptation to expediency uh, and to just do what's convenient and easy for him came, he gave up within minutes and, and he caved to it. But when the temptation for Jesus to do what was expedient came to him, he kept pressing back against it over and over and resisting it and saying, I will do what the Father calls me to do even when it's a great cost to me. Like, I am not going to take the easy way out. I am not just going to do what makes things simpler for me. I am going to press deeper and deeper, and I'm going to keep combating this temptation. I will not cave to it. And we ought to be thankful and grateful that he did. Because if he would have given in to that temptation, A, he wouldn't have been a sinless Savior or been able to be a sacrifice for us anymore. But he also, if he would have given in to that, he never would have gone to the cross. If he would have just given in to what was expedient and easy for him, the cross would have never taken place. And do you know what that means for us? Salvation could not be offered to us. It could not be given to us. It could not be extended to us because our sins would still be on our heads. Because the cross was what was necessary for our sins to be removed from us and our sins to be judged. And we ought to be thankful to God that Jesus resisted that temptation to do what was expedient. And he can help us to resist that same temptation. To just, that temptation to just do what's easy in the moment. To do what is convenient for me. To, to back away from Jesus. To back away from what I know is right because it's simpler and it, it makes things smoother for me. We are not different from Peter. Just because Jesus, or, uh, Peter's record of denial is written here in Scripture for us to read till Jesus comes back uh, doesn't mean that, that we should think of him as different from us, that we should think of him as worse than us. We all face this temptation to do what is expedient, to do what is convenient for us, and we deny Jesus in the process. Denying Jesus rarely, like in the fullest sense of it, rarely begins with just some full-orbed denial and public rejection of Jesus. Usually it starts in much smaller ways and choices of our hearts where, where a question of convenience comes up to us and we make a, what seems like a small choice to us to disobey him and to distance ourselves from him. But those things become, just like in the life of Peter here, they become easier and easier and easier for us the more that we do it. And we get to places we never thought we would be. For example, like we at times in our workplaces may be tempted, like Peter here, to hide our allegiance to Jesus. We might not have this come right into our face and people say, are you a follower of Jesus? And us say, no. 
But do we not face temptation sometimes to just kind of blend in like a chameleon into, into to society and into un, unbelieving cultures and, and communities? And we subtly start to deny Jesus by our silence. We, we, we may not say the actual words that I don't trust in Jesus, but we, by our actions and by the things that we do, we communicate that to people. And we're subtly, whether we realize it or not, we start to distance ourselves from Jesus. Think about how you use your words in ways that you may do what is convenient at times and so doing deny Jesus. How many times do we tell what we call little white lies to people? And we think they're not a big deal. We think they're not going to hurt anybody, but it's just going to make this conversation smoother. Like they don't really need to know the full truth, or I can leave these things out, or I can kind of slant stuff a little bit. It's just going to make stuff smoother. You know what? It's just going to be better for everybody if I just do that. That is expediency. Or when people are joking about things that are inappropriate. There's cracking jokes that are just awful, dishonoring to maybe women, for example. And we are tempted to joke and to laugh about it in order to fit in because we don't want to be the oddball who doesn't laugh or who who suggests that that's inappropriate. And we start to accommodate. We start to compromise and do what's expedient in the moment in that, that group of people. We sometimes, even in parenting, I was thinking about that, we sometimes just do what seems like it's going to work in the moment, and we sometimes will vent our anger at a child, or we'll, we'll raise our voice and just because we want to get them to stop. And we're willing to compromise on things, and we think that the end justifies the means. That I, I can be rude, I can dishonor and disobey commands that God has told me of how I should treat them and love them if it gets me what I would like, if it makes things smoother and calmer and more peaceful. Think about at work. Maybe you are tempted to, to when projects are coming near to an end and you've got to get something done and you haven't been able to get it done, and do you just face the temptation to fudge on it and to, to kind of gloss things over and hope nobody notices just to meet a deadline? It's tax season coming up. I know sometimes people face temptations to uh, leave things out on their taxes in order to get more money back or to owe less to the government because we think, I'll use my money better than they would. And we justify being deceptive or manipulative with numbers in order to get things that we want. There are all sorts of things. I had a much longer list by the time I could delineate these, but I hope that the Spirit can help you see and help me see ways in our lives that we are willing to make what feel like small compromises to us for the sake of something we think is a good outcome. But I hope he helps us see that in doing that, we are distancing ourselves from Jesus and we are giving in to this temptation to just do what's expedient rather than what's honoring to Jesus. We ought to look to Jesus to, to realize that and look at the cross itself to know that there are no small sins. Like there's no sins that are white or that are, are innocent. They are all things that are, are un, ungodly. They are unholy. They are choices that may feel small to us, but they necessitated the death of Christ. Even this denial of Peter is one that Jesus would have to die for just hours later. When that rooster crowed in verse 27, when Peter had denied Jesus for the, first, or for the third time, I hope that it served, and I think it did based on how he responded, served as a wake-up call to him. 
as, as something that would have snapped him out to realize, man, I have so quickly gone from thinking I was so faithful, I was so strong, unshakable, and now in a matter of minutes, maybe hours, I have denied my Savior. I've denied my friend three times. I've just done what was easy for me. I hope that the, as that rooster crowed and went into his ears, that it, it woke him up, it shook him to say, I cannot treat him this way. I cannot continue to deny him. And perhaps that's what the Lord is doing in your heart today. That he is waking you up to see, I, whether I realize it or not, I have distanced myself from Jesus. I have denied him, maybe in ways that felt small, but has gotten easier and easier and easier for me. But that is not acceptable, and I need to repent of it, just like Peter does as we read on. I need to turn back to Christ. And if that is you, I want to tell you, Christ is glad to forgive you. Christ is glad to receive you. He is glad to extend mercy and forgiveness to you. The other gospel writer uh, record for us, actually Luke does in Luke 22. And I wonder what this looks like. That when Peter denied Jesus that third time when the rooster crows, Luke records that Jesus turned and looked at him. And I've wondered what the look on his face was like. When Jesus turned and looked at his friend who had just denied him for the third time. I used to think that it was probably one of like frustration and like anger at him. Like, how could you do this to me, Peter? Like, I knew Judas would. But I think that it was probably a look of compassion. Maybe disappointment makes him, but of compassion and mercy towards Peter. Because when that rooster crowed, what also should have triggered in Peter's mind is that Jesus knew I would do this. And he still loved me. Like he knew I would do this. He told me I would do this even when I thought I wouldn't. But he still loved me. And he still loves me. And I hope that that is a reminder to us that even when we deny Jesus, when we distance ourselves from him, that he, when he looks at us, if we're trusting in him, if we're repenting of that and turning back to him, he is glad to receive us. He is glad to forgive us. He is not looking at us in anger or in judgment or frustration or wrath, but he is looking at us with compassion, saying, return to me. Stop denying me. Start professing me. Start trusting me. Start obeying me again. But praise God that he resisted that temptation of expediency and that he can help us to do the same.